As we come to what is an incredibly difficult passage of scripture this morning, I have to say that I come sort of with great trepidation. I'm not an expert on relationships. I'm not an expert on this particular passage of scripture. So I would value your prayers as much as my prayers go to you as we look at this together. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, you'll see what I mean when we read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to read from verses 1 down to 11, and then I'm just going to read verse 17 as well. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Then down to verse 17. Nevertheless, each of you should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you. Just as God has called you, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Difficult stuff. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you that your word speaks into our contemporary life. Thank you that even though our cultures may change and our situations may change, you never change. And so, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to really open your word to us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was my birthday last weekend, and our boys bought me a mug. Here it is. It says on it, this is where Dad works. So far, so good. So have it on my desk, just through there, in the office, in the manse. Then inside, it says, encouragingly, I love my job. But on the back of it, it says this. He has no idea what he does here. He just drinks lots of coffee. (laughs) Does anyone relate to that with their work? Sometimes thinking, I have no idea what is going on. I wonder whether you sometimes feel like that in your personal relationships. That if we're honest, sometimes we don't really know what is going on. You know, life doesn't come with manuals for each eventuality, does it? Life doesn't come with a set path of how everything can happen. And so the church in Corinth starts asking Paul some serious questions about relationships. 
about relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationships in a marriage relationship, um, singleness, and all kinds of other issues that come out in this whole passage. And the church in Corinth has some really serious things that it wants to know answers to. Up to now in 1 Corinthians, what Paul has been dealing with is things that he has heard back about what's been going on in the church in Corinth. I don't know if you've sort of noticed that as we've gone through the first chapters of the book, a lot of what has been talked about is the dirty washing of the church. You know, things like people having sex with prostitutes, somebody sleeping with his stepmother, these awful divisions that have been going on in the church. But now, Paul is responding to a letter that actually the church in Corinth has written to Paul. They've written to him as their apostle asking questions. Questions on sex in marriage, singleness, being a widow, or a widower, and divorce. None of us this morning can switch off from this passage. Because all of us are in one of those categories somewhere. And this is perhaps, I think, one of the most potentially dangerous of all the passages in 1 Corinthians. Because if we read it, and we're not careful with it, if we read it out of context we can end up in places of condemnation that I don't believe Jesus wants us to be in. And we can read it in very dangerous ways. You know, the gulf between our experience now in 21st century Britain and what life was like in 1st century Greece, where Corinth was, are totally different. The issues are totally different. That, however, doesn't mean that this has nothing to say to us. Far from it. I think God has an awful lot to say to us from these words this morning. But we need to understand a little bit of the background as to what was going on in Corinth and why Paul writes in the way that he does here. Because in Corinth, there were two extreme viewpoints, as there was right across um, a lot of the eastern Mediterranean. If you lived in a Jewish community, the Jews at this period placed a massively high value on marriage. Marriage was seen as the pinnacle of what a human being could do. So the pinnacle of what God wanted for a human being was to get married and live in a marriage relationship. But if you were from a Greek background, or you were living in a sort of Greek community, or you were in a church that was heavily influenced by Greek thinking, they thought something quite different. They thought if you wanted to be spiritual, actually, you needed to be on your own, you needed to be abstaining from sexual relationships, and it was that kind of road that led to a closer relationship with God. Can you see why you've got problems in the church in Corinth? You've got two worldviews that are coming like this and missing one another, and nobody quite knows what is going on. So you've got people in the church saying, sex is evil, full stop, even if you're married, don't have sex. And you've got other people saying, marriage is the absolute pinnacle, do whatever you can to get married, and that is what God has for you. And so you've got some married people who want to be single, Some married people who want to be in sexless marriages. You've got single people wanting to get married. Pressure on single people to not get married. People wanting to leave their husband and wife if they're not believers. What a muddle. You can see why they write to Paul, can't you? What are we to do with all these situations? And so this is the context to which Paul starts to write to the church. And if we could summarize what Paul is saying... It's that verse down at the bottom, that verse that I read in verse 17, where basically Paul is saying, actually, come to God as you are, as Jesus called you, and don't be too eager to change that situation. So there we go. 
Shall we finish and move into communion? Let ourselves off the hook? Well, it'd be very tempting, wouldn't it? But I think we'd better carry on. You see, in today's Christian world, I think there is a temptation to do what the Jewish communities of the day were doing and to have marriage on this kind of pedestal that somehow says, if you're single, you're living less than actually what God would want for you and that actually marriage is the pinnacle of everything and if you, if you marry somebody, it will solve all your problems and it will make life just a dream. You know, Claire experiences this on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> but everything will be fantastic. <laughs> A few months ago, I was chatting to a regional minister, one of the Baptist regional ministers, not Phil Jump, just so you know, because he's coming in a few weeks, um, but one of the, the ones from a, a different association. And they were telling me about a minister, a young minister in his 20s. He'd just been called to quite a big church to be minister. And this person said, it's great, a really great appointment. This church will go really well. All we need to do now is find him a wife. And I'm thinking, no, absolutely not. That is not what this passage is saying. What Paul starts to say here is that marriage is a high calling and singleness is a high calling. And live as God has called you and live well as God has called you. So let's have a look at the different issues that come up here. The first one is marriage. Many of us here today are married. I'm married. And so this stuff resonates with me, the stuff on marriage. But I think if today, if you're here and you're single, I think it's important that we understand one another, isn't it? It's important that we understand the pressures on each other's lives. And the question to Paul here is from the abstinence group, if you like, the Greek group within the church. And they're saying that sex is so bad, you don't even want to have sex in marriage. You know, keep yourself clean from it. Keep yourself pure. Stand back from it and devote yourselves to other things. And what Paul sets about doing in these verses is totally unpicking that kind of thinking. What he's doing here, though, and we need to remember this, is that Paul is writing to people with a presumption that actually within that relationship, both physically and emotionally, that married couple are able to have sex. He doesn't answer questions that go beyond that, so we're not going to answer beyond actually what Paul is doing this morning. But what he does say is effectively this. Sex is part of married life. Husbands and wives, you are not your own. You belong to each other. And what Paul says here is totally unique in ancient writings. The equality and the dignity to which Paul gives both to men and women is totally unique. You see how it's total equality in the passage? You're not owned. You're you're owned by each other. It's not that the man has domination over the woman as was so often the case in ancient societies. But there is equality. You know, this is radical, radical stuff. And by saying what Paul does here, sex is not to be used for power games. It's not a bribe. It's not a reward. It's not withheld for punishment. It is the self-giving love of one partner to another. Verse 5, Paul says that um, sex within a marriage is one way of avoiding temptation. He says in verse 5, even if you've prayed together, even if you've agreed to not be intimate with each other for a while, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I think what Paul is saying here, yes, he's talking about sexual intimacy, but we can actually expand it out beyond that. 
Because intimacy within a marriage relationship goes way beyond just the physical. The emotional intimacy, the communicational intimacy, the intimacy of knowing what each other think, of conversations, of spending time together. And if you have time at some point later on today, go and read Ephesians 5. Paul writing again about marriage. Paul writing about the love between a husband and wife. And he says the love between a husband and wife needs to be modeled on the love that Christ has for the church. That's the model. That's the intimacy that Paul is encouraging. But you know in our world today, Christian marriage, as with every form of marriage, is under great pressure. The statistics for marital breakdown make for alarming and disturbing reading. You know, if today you are married, don't ever think that you are above the temptations of the world. Don't ever think that there aren't things that will batter you and battle your relationship. But as we read this, we see that God's heart is for marriage. God's heart is for marriages that last and flourish over a lifetime. In my office, um, just through there, I think the windows are too steamed up to see, otherwise those of you will be looking on that windowsill, and you will see a half-dead plant. We're not very good at house plants in our house, and what tends to happen is when people buy us plants, they start off in the lounge, and then we've, we've managed to do them some sort of damage. They then get transferred into my office. And there they live a long, slow, lingering death until eventually they get recycled. Now, we never repot houseplants. I understand from my mother that you meant to repot them every now and again, or they become pot-bound. I know they need water. I, I get that much. Um, but we don't feed them. We don't do anything to them. It's not that sad. We, if you're a houseplant lover, you'll probably think it is very sad. But I don't think it's that sad when a houseplant dies. I don't think it's something that is going to grip me with a sense of mourning. I'm not going to be pulling out the few remaining hairs off the top of my head. Well, you know, sadly, sometimes I wonder, for those of us who are married, if we treat our marriages rather like houseplants, that at one time they were in prime place. At one time they were in the lounge, if you like, of our lives, or the kitchen, the place where things are happening. But over time, that initial love, the passion, the time spent together gets overtaken gets overtaken possibly by work pressures or if if children have come along in the marriage or if an extended family and looking after parents or whatever else it may be. And if we're not careful, that relationship goes from being in the lounge of our life to being in some room where actually you're not that bothered about it. And it happens over time. It happens over a long period of time. And if we're not careful, those marriage relationships can start to wilt and they can start to get in a fragile state. Or they can become pot-bound and stop growing. If today you're here and you're married, can I employ you with everything that I have to look after it? To look after that relationship that God has given you? To take care of it? To nurture it? To spend time together? To prioritize it? To think this is the calling, this is where God has called you to be? You know, nobody on their deathbed, I believe, ever lies there thinking, if only I'd sent more emails... Nobody ever lies there on their deathbed thinking, if I'd just spent that extra day in the office, if I'd just even gone to that extra church meeting. But I wonder how many people think, if only I'd looked after those relationships that God had given me. 
If only I'd invested in those things that God had blessed me with. And perhaps today, for some of us, there is that serious need for reevaluation, for making sure that we put our effort into those things that God has blessed us with, that relationship, to reevaluate life. Perhaps book in if you're married, go on a date night. Enjoy time together. Spend time together. If you've got children, get a babysitting circle sorted so you can spend time together. And if this morning, if you need help, if your relationship really is on the rocks, don't leave it till it's too late. Bring it before the Lord. Seek help from other Christians. And can I encourage all of us to pray for marriage, to pray for the marriages in our church, to pray for the marriages in our families, that God will bless and that God will support. Paul moves us on. He now talks about singleness. And in a sense, what Paul is doing here is he's moving from addressing the issues of the Greek group to now some of the issues of the the Jewish thinking group. The group who think that marriage is actually the pinnacle of everything. Verse 8, see what he says. Now to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Paul is single. It's clear from what he says here that he is not in a married relationship. We don't know whether Paul was ever married. It just doesn't tell us in the Bible. It would have been unusual for a Jewish teacher at this point to have never been married, but we just do not know. So there's no point in speculating any further. But what we do know is that Paul is contentedly living a single life. And he, he realizes that for him, this calling to singleness actually allows him to have the freedom to be the person God wants him to be. If you've got your Bible open, just look later on in the chapter. This is down to verse 32 and 33 and 34. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. How can he please the Lord? But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Paul views singleness as God's gift, God's gift to him. He can go wherever God wants him to go. He's free to do that. Paul is living in a situation where his sexual desires are under control. And then we get the next bit, verse 9, that when you read it, it comes across with a bit of a sting in it. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It can easily read as Paul's saying, well, if you're weak willed and you can't cope with being single, then go and get married. That's what you need to do. But I think we need to be a bit more careful with these verses here. Remember the context, the Greek group who thought that actually the most important thing was to be single and free and free from all those kind of sexual things. The Jewish group who put marriage on a pedestal. And then Paul, who views them both as callings from God. Both as callings from God. Paul is very keen to emphasize that the single lifestyle is a call to a celibate lifestyle. He's gone to great lengths in the previous chapters to encourage the church away from all kinds of immorality. But what he's saying here is if you are single, and this is what God has called you to be, then this is a high calling. This is a high calling from the Lord. But if you want to get married, that is good too. As long as we honour God in those relationships. 
as long as we honour the Lord. In the wider church, I think if we've been guilty of anything, it's that we don't honour what Paul is saying here. We don't honour those people adequately who feel really called to a life of singleness. We don't take these words seriously. And Paul is an example of devotion to the Lord, isn't he? He's going to this place, to that place, spreading the message of the gospel. Now what Paul doesn't address here, and we haven't got time to address it this morning, is singleness when a person really would like to be married. That is another whole different issue. He also doesn't address what it's like for people going out with each other, because that didn't happen in that culture at all, so he doesn't address that. Now, I think with singleness on those kind of bases, I'm not the best person to start talking about that. But what I I think we will do is come back to this as an issue at some point in the future and look at it in greater depth. But what I will say is this. If you're single, if you're married, God calls us to honour him. Honour him in our relationships, to look after ourselves, to look after our relationship with God primarily, and then the relationships that he's put us in. That is where God's call is. And so now we come to what is the most difficult and painful issue that Paul has to talk about. And it's the whole issue of when a marriage doesn't work and when a marriage ends in divorce. Statistically, in the UK, one in two marriages or thereabouts are ending in divorce at the moment. That is slightly lower amongst Christians, but it's not significantly lower just slightly. Divorce happens for all kinds of reasons. We've had very good friends, family members who've got divorced, and it's happened because of marital unfaithfulness. It's happened because of abuse. It's happened when people simply fall out of love or there's a lack of interest in a relationship. It's also happened when people have started exploring their own sexuality in different ways. The list could go on and on and on. From my personal experience of knowing people who've had the pain of a divorce to go through, there's a lot of detail, you know, and if we were to, to, to talk about it, we'd be thinking of specific things and lots of different things. And yet here comes Paul, almost like with the biggest paintbrush you can imagine, and in a couple of sentences does a huge brushstroke and talks about the whole issue. Now, from what Paul says here, it's clear that he knows Jesus' teaching. Because he says, this is not from me, this is from the Lord. And if we listen to what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says this. This is from verse 31. It was also said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a written divorce paper. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife forces her to be guilty of adultery. The only reason for a man to divorce his wife is if she has been guilty of sexual relationships with another man. And anyone who marries that divorced woman is guilty of of adultery. Verses 10 and 11 of this passage in Corinthians. Now to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Of all the verses in 1 Corinthians, I think these verses have the potential if we read them wrongly, to cause the most pain, to cause the most anguish. And we need to read them in context. 
We need to read them through the lens of the whole of Scripture, and we need to bathe them in the character of God, who is love and mercy and compassion. Just again, set the context. In a Greek culture, it was possible for a man to divorce a woman and for a woman to divorce a man. In a Jewish culture, it was all on the man's responsibility. But in Corinth, it appears that there were those who were wanting to get divorced so they can become single again, so they can get into that Greek group of the abstinence group. I think it's absolutely crucial that we understand some of this context so we can see why Paul writes the way he does. Otherwise, we run the very real risk of saying that actually marital breakdown becomes some kind of unforgivable sin of which you can't move on from. Now, as we read the whole of Scripture, apart from that one thing where Jesus talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, every other sin, every other failure can be brought under the freedom of what Jesus has done at the cross. There is no condemnation when we repent. So we need to read these verses in the context of the passage, the context of the time, and in the context of the character of God. What we can say is God's heart is for loving, committed, lifelong marriage. I think we can say that. That is consistent through scripture. God's heart breaks when marriages fall apart, whatever the situation. God's heart breaks for us. When a marriage ends, the pain and the anguish caused can be like, you know when you throw a rock into a still pool of water and the ripples go out and they keep going out, it affects not just the person, the couple, the family, but friends, and it just keeps going on and on and on. That is why it says in Hebrews 13, marriage should be honoured by all. But you know, we live in a broken world, don't we? We are all fallen. We all fall short. We all give in to temptation from time to time. We all hurt other people. We all break relationships because we're not yet the people that God wants us to be. Some of you here this morning will have been broken by what other people have done to you. And the sad truth is that even in Christian marriages, there gets a point sometimes where reconciliation just seems impossible. This is where we need to be so careful. These verses are a warning. They set a high ideal. They set God's perfect plan for his people. But they must not be used for a framework for condemnation, for pointing the finger, or for sending ourselves off on guilt trips. God is love. Jesus has paid the price for all of our sins. Jesus, the conqueror of death, conquers those things that would have conquered us. And he walks us into freedom. If today you have been through the pain of a marriage that has failed, if you've been in that situation, Jesus is not condemning us. Jesus does not point the finger. But Jesus longs to see us restored and renewed and forgiven. Right the way through scripture, what do we find? God is the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance. He's the God who renews and restores us. And so what I believe is happening here is Paul is not offering a new law to beat ourselves up, but a command to a church in a particular pastoral situation. But what do we say about remarriage? 
because Paul clearly has something to say here as well, and we can't just bypass it. Or we have to say that the Bible gives us no clear voice into our own context. Jesus talks about an exception to marital unfaithfulness, which Paul doesn't address here. But again, this is where we need to submerse ourselves into the character of God, the character of our loving Heavenly Father. For what it's worth, I'll give you my own view. You need to go and take this and weigh it. Thankfully, a lot of other commentators would hold the view that I would hold here. And my view on it is this. God is forgiving. God is gracious. And if we genuinely come to him in repentance and faith, everything is dealt with. And that is everything. There is no condemnation. There are no hangers-on from the past. It is all dealt with and broken. All that is gone. What I'm not talking about here is some kind of cheap grace. Some kind of grace that says, actually, if you've just got a bit bored with your husband or wife, don't work it out, just forget it. I'm not talking about that at all. Don't hear me wrong. But if things have got to a point and your life in the past has been broken, God is the one who gives you the chance to start again. And those past failings are remembered no more. We are free to live as God's new creation. And I know some of you this morning and I'm getting to know some of you quite well, is that actually you've known the joy of that freedom, the joy of the freedom from the past that God has brought, and you've been able to walk forward into a new married relationship. You have been made new in Christ. The old, whatever the old was, has gone. No hangers-on, no things we can't shake off. Gloriously made new in Jesus Christ whether that's to singleness or to marriage. And isn't that the heart of the gospel? Isn't that the heart of the gospel? That we are not under condemnation when we come to God in repentance and faith. That we are free and that it is real freedom. That it is freedom to move forward. And the challenge Paul gives, live lives that honour God. Live lives that honour God. And basically his point is, if you're married, stay married and make the best you can of it. If you're single, basically saying, don't be too eager to change it. If you want to, that's fine, but don't be too eager. But live in the calling that God has given you. Now, I'm not saying any of this is easy. There was a lot of me this week thought, let's just skip chapter 7. But then I saw that it was food Um, dedicated to idols in chapter 8, so that's not really any better either. (laughs) But Paul doesn't leave us anywhere to hide, does he? He brings the reality of life. And so I'm really conscious, this is why we're going to come straight to communion just in a moment and leave time for, for one another to be prayed with. Because it may be, as we've looked at this passage this morning, that it's actually been a bit like picking a scab on your knee. You know, when you were kids and you used to fall over. You get those big scabs and you just want to pull them off, but you know how much it hurts. And it may be that actually there are some things this morning that are feeling a bit like that. And you just need to be prayed with. You need to bring whatever your reality is into God's presence and just ask for God to be with you.